Welcome to The Cultured Commuter, a cultured approach to the daily commute. I'm John Church. And I'm Catherine Moran. In this episode, we journey deep into the gardens of Versailles, a fantasy realm with distinctly political and cultural messages. Devised by three French kings as a backdrop for power and intrigue, the gardens served as a stage for public spectacle, private retreat, and were replete with hidden meanings only a savvy courtier could navigate. As the dawn breaks over the gardens of Versailles, the mist clears and the sun god Apollo emerges in his chariot. It appears as though we've entered a magical kingdom where cherubs play and gods and goddesses rule. Or is this a place carefully calculated to proclaim kingly power? I think the magic of the king's garden is that it reinforces the king's power. And at the very center of that garden, the Apollo fountain, with the sun god himself, Apollo in his chariot, about to spring forth from a reflecting pool to bring light to the morning. The sun god Apollo is the glittering symbol of King Louis XIV. He took the image of a divine sun king as his own, believing that just as the sun is the center of the cosmos, so was France the center of the universe. A very specific message, but that garden is also a play on double meanings. You know, symbolism and nuance permeate every view and garden path, and you know, nothing is to be taken at face value. Just like the life of the courtiers inside the palace before that garden, this is a place for show. I mean, it's a stage. It's a stage set designed by André Lenote, who had gardens and really royal gardens in his blood. His father was in charge of the fantastic gardens at the Tuileries. Which Not is a, a bad start in life. No, right? Starting off as a uh, assistant to your father in the gardens of the royal palace in Paris. So Lenote begins working there and eventually comes to lay out the Grand Avenue that is the Champs-Élysées and the main street of Paris, which ends at one side with Arc de Triomphe and at the other, the Louvre. So he already, I think, has become the master of the Grand Vista. I think so. This idea of spectacle and seeing is incredibly important. He also designed the expensive gardens at Vaux-le-Vicomte and the Chateau of Louis' Minister of Finance, Nicolas Fouquet. This garden was finished in about 1661, and it really was a triumph for Lenote. It puts him on the map, he has established himself as the premier garden designer. But it was a tragedy for its owner. Yeah, Fouquet was imprisoned in the same year by Louis XIV for basically the crime of living better than the king. So Louis imprisons Fouquet and takes Lenote off to Versailles to transform what is actually a flat, poorly watered piece of land without much of a view into a magical kingdom. And how do you chart out you know, the magical kingdom? I mean, Lenot works on the garden at Versailles for almost 20 years, 1661 to 1682. And even beyond that, it takes about 40 years for that entire grand plan to mature. And think of the canvas he works on. 2,000 acres, 200,000 trees, 200,000 flowers. I mean, this vast project, and it's all to complement the king's new palace, the, the new Versailles, which Louis builds around his father's original hunting lodge. And this would be the center of Louis's universe. And how interesting that the garden is laid out 
on an east-west axis. And this east-west axis reinforces the course of the sun and Louis as the center of the universe and the sun king. The inspiration for the gardens of Versailles also have a backstory. Italian models. Make no mistake, Lenot takes the classical Italian garden tradition and refines it in a very French way. Louis' grandmother was a Medici from Florence. There are Italian influences making their way up. And this ideal of the classical garden as composed of water, greenery, and stone is the basis of it. However, Italian gardens have a greater element of the fantastic, the whimsical, the dramatic. Their sigh is grand, majestic, but it's refined. Even though, you're right, even though in France the Medici influence is from the maternal line, it can be said that the gardens of Versailles are totally subordinate to the king's will. They're pure geometry laid on the land, and in that way it's a very masculine kind of garden design. You know, women's gardens were relegated to kitchen gardens, something more whimsical and utilitarian. But this type of formality imposed in a geometric form is all male all the time. And the initial layout of the garden, the initial work, was done by the army. The French army, under the direction of the military architect Vauban, had to divert the waters from the River Eure for all the great fountains because Versailles lacked water. So it's this military work first, then elegant design on top of it in this great outdoor place. And the place is so important. We are talking about the gardens, but I don't think that it's really possible to explore the gardens without thinking about their setting as an envelope to the palace at Versailles. So how did all of these ideas about court life and power structures play themselves out in the notes designs? All part of a grand design. And the, the basic element of this garden is the grand vista. And it begins first when you leave the palace, you step out onto that gravel from the Hall of Mirrors and the orangerie holding the king's rare plants, you step out onto a terrace of gravel with two enormous pools that reflect both the sky above and the grand architecture behind you of the palace. Then you look to one side, there's a parterre. The other side is another parterre with the potted palms and elaborate topiaries, you know, the plants in clipped form. But your view is down, is always towards the east where the sun rises with trees at either side. It's grand, but it's a simple view in a way. It's a simple, disciplined axis to look down at first before all the detail is revealed. That's true. And in many ways, the simplicity mirrors the simplicity of the absolutism of the king. So in design, there's one focal point. There's one way to look. There are many beautiful things to see along the way, but it is the overall vision of Louis, and so is the vision of France, really. And so, you know, you have this green architecture growing in the garden, the gods and goddesses that mark in marble and bronze, and then beyond that are the bosquets. So think of this, palace, the grand terrace, which almost acts like a middle ground, between the formality of the main palace and the greenery beyond. And it's all designed for one thing, and that's a royal progress. It is, and the royal progress through the gardens was specifically designed by Louis. So it's the king's experience of the gardens that 
any visitor would experience. So the King's Tour um, is called the Ambassador's Tour Route. And it's a very calculated tour route. And the king wrote his own manual. Louis wrote down an, a, a way to tour the garden. It's a guidebook for experiencing it a la Louis. And for ambassadors. And what would those ambassadors do? They'd go back to their king or queen and tell them about the glories of the garden. You're right. He's an absolute monarch. And in his palace and his gardens, reinforce this power of personal glory and distill really the glory of France itself. So the grand gardens are not for everyone. They are for the specific audience, and they reinforce a social structure imposed by Louis. There's a hierarchy and an order to everything. Protocol and etiquette ruled every aspect of daily life in the palace. And even a commoner could visit. Could rent a sword. He could, and I love that although there's access for all, it was a pretty far walk from Paris or from any of the outlying um, suburbs, basically of Versailles, and the idea that you had to rent a sword to enter, just the act of carrying a sword, especially if one did not own one, around the Palace of Versailles and its gardens, I think would ennoble even the, the lowest peasant. So let's take a walk in the mind of a king, you know, through his garden. And what you're entering, mind you, is the mystical garden. The king wanted to transform you. He wanted to be transcendent. He wanted you to walk in the gravel and among the trees, but be reminded of these heavenly glories, this divine right of a king. So there's a worldly function for the garden. There's an ethereal function. And, you know, the whole palace and the courtiers pivoted on this garden. It was the center of all things. As I'd mentioned, you leave the Hall of Mirrors, the main reception room, with mirrors to reflect the garden. And reflect yourself in the garden. Then you walk out. Those two great pools reflect the sky, reflect the palace. And then you then... See the parterre beds. Now, what is a parterre bed? It's flat to the ground. I call it a garden that has no business growing. It's, it's carefully true. laid out. You know, swirls of flowers, boxwoods. They often call them embroidered parterres, or in the French, parterre de broderie, because they look like fine embroidery with these floral elements, and they put crushed gravel between the flowers. So again, it's this static painting almost, you know, painting with flowers and plant material uh, on the ground. So I said clipped garden that has no business growing. It's a static kind of green architecture controlled by human hands and determined by the royal will. And again, if you look to your left, you see the king's parterres on the left and right. And then before you, you look out on Apollo's kingdom. The rest of the garden begins to roll out at your feet. Now, Apollo's kingdom begins with the grand statue of Apollo's mother, and when we think about that in terms of metaphor for Versailles and for the gardens, Apollo is Louis. Louis is Apollo. And we see images of Apollo everywhere in Versailles, not just in the gardens. Starting in the main gate, in over-door carvings, in rooms, on furniture, carved in wood and stone and every gilded surface. And then you meet him in the garden at the Latona Fountain. So Latona is the mother of Apollo. She's pictured surrounded by frogs in the lower basin. And according to ancient myth, Latona turned peasants into frogs when they refused her water. So the birth of the garden really begins with Apollo metaphorically and the birth of the sun king, Louis. And when you leave 
Boletona Fountain. You don't come upon right away another fountain. You come upon a real um, aspect of restraint. It's the tapis vert, or the green carpet, a long rectangular grass turf linking the Latona Fountain to the next fountain you will see. This is the brilliance of Lenot, knowing when to hold back. Because as you're looking down, you see that great marble sculpture of Latona and her fountain. Your eye needs a rest to prepare for the next moment uh, you know, of, of grandeur. And what a moment, right? We have the Apollo Fountain, which could be said to be really the axis mundi of the gardens. The Apollo Fountain is the spirit of Versailles and thus of Louis's modern France. All paths lead to and from this fountain, as really all roads in France lead to Louis. And when Louis journeys through his garden, Apollo is journeying through his garden. And a great rest stop was called the Grotto of Thetis. And Thetis was a sea nymph. And in her grotto, Apollo rested after driving his chariot through the sky. Well, the Grotto of Thetis in the Garden of Versailles is where Louis XIV would rest. And his queen, Maria Therese, and his mother, Anne of Austria, would often be waiting there for him. He often would entertain foreign guests by driving them through the Gardens of Versailles in his carriage. It's like Apollo touring the gardens with you in his chariot. And then you receive the women of the royal house in the grotto. There's a practical side, too, to the Grotto of Thetis. There always is at Versailles. There's the magical part. But in the roof of the Grotto of Thetis, there's a reservoir to circulate water from the Grand Canal, which you'll see beyond, and all of the fountains by a network of windmill-powered pumps from the Fountain of Apollo. You then come on the grandest of all grand views, the Grand Canal. But then there's some secrets on either side of that Grand Canal. Well, that's the thing about the gardens at Versailles. There's such a formality and a restraint and a particular order through which visitors would progress. And there is a view to infinity down the Grand Canal. But there are also other kinds of areas. We have the woodlands, these bosquets, which are wooded areas that allow for perhaps the courtiers to be a little bit out of the public eye for a moment. Each one is a woodland path cut into the greenery and central courts. There's statuary and fountains, and each was given a wonderful name, such as the Theater of Water, the Arc of Triomphe, or the Grove of Venus. There are no buildings, but there are open-air salons focusing on fountains, water cascades, with elaborate rock work and sculptures. These really are green rooms, and there's a treescape in the Bosquets because it is a woodland. Louis imported trees from throughout France. It is a French garden, after all. So they created walls in these gardens, first and foremost, by building trellises, and hornbeam was grown through them and clipped to make a truly green architecture, a growing wall. You didn't see the trellis after a while. You see this perfectly clipped green wall, and then behind them, this lush assortment of horse chestnut trees, sycamore, lindens, elms, beeches, and there's also a tulip tree from Virginia, so they were collecting trees from around the world. But imagine that difference of a perfectly clipped green wall and the soft trees behind it. It's this combination of textures you know, throughout the garden. Louis wanted his courtiers to feel as though they were getting a little bit of privacy. And I think that after the strict formality and openness of other parts of the garden, these walled gardens, these special places, must have seemed really like a respite for your eyes, for your person. And we do have to remember, though, 
that even though it feels as though you're having privacy, this is still a kind of sense of false privacy designed by the king. It was a place outside the formality of court, and you maybe hoped you wouldn't meet another courtier around the next bosquet, but of course, such are the life and risks at court. Anything could happen. And of all of the bosquets, one of the more intriguing, I would say, was the labyrinth. It really is such a special place. It's a, well, it was a bosquet of what called nuance and riddles, and it was inspired by fables. It's a series of walks in a maze-like element. You have to walk your way through this labyrinth. You don't know where you're going. And you encounter statues inspired by scenes from Aesop's fables. Now, it was envisioned as a lesson plan for the king's son, the Dauphin. You know, because Aesop's fables are stories with animals, but they're all morality tales, you know. And so you're in a little secret kingdom here. You never know what's coming next, but you're all subject to the king's riddles, so to speak. And I think there's also a sense of falseness in this. The king is offering a morality tale, not only for his son, but also for his courtiers. And there's a sense always that the king is watching you enjoy all of these different divertissements that he has created in his garden. It's as if the courtiers are his marionettes. They and he's really playing are. with them in this labyrinth and these bosquets. And the sense of surprise, the sense of excitement that I think Louis intended to imbue in all of these special places in the garden is true. It, they're wonderful. But these are grown men and women, wise in the ways of the world. I don't think they were terribly surprised by statuary relating Aesop's fables. Do you? They may have been intrigued by trying to decode the king's message. That's you true. Know, there was a sphinx-like element, and there's always a game-playing element to everything, a nuance at court. And no surprise that the advisor on the creation of this labyrinth was Charles Perrault, who was a secretary to Louis' minister, Colbert. Charles Perrault was doing something that people did not know, though. He was the author of fairy tales, the classic fairy tales, Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood, Sleeping Beauty, and he admired Aesop's fables. They were his inspiration of morality tales. So Perrault takes rustic folk tales but puts them in the elegant dress of the court and the intrigues of court. Cinderella's gown, Cinderella's shoe, jealous princesses, noble kings, etc., so forth. So Perrault is advising on this magical mystical, fairy tale like labyrinth with a moral tale to it. As you progress through, you're really playing along with the king. You're absolutely going with his experience. You're going along with it. You're playing along with his vision of how you should be experiencing the garden. And the king himself is using nature to play games, but to also establish himself. And there's an interesting role about how he uses nature to cultivate power. And the idea, again, of a man's garden as this formal geometric space created very specifically by Louis, rather than the kitchen gardens, which are nourishing, medicinal, practical, domestic, place women in the role of objects. They are another beautiful flower within the king's garden to be adored, admired, 
watched and perhaps plucked and pursued. Like statues of fauns and nymphs and Venuses and even the queen herself and the queen mother waiting in the grotto to receive visitors, but not controlling the garden at all. No. And if you think of the parterre, you know, the mathematical parterre, the clipped greenery as the man's realm where reason dominates... And, and spectacle, and spectacle. Too. being able to be seen every footstep you take determined by a preordained path that the king has prescribed for you to walk on. And also, you know, the bosquets were somewhat of an escape from that because they're off the grand axis. They are. You move into a sort of a secret world. But they're still available to everyone at court. So although they are removed from the wide open vision of the rest of the garden, they're certainly by no means actually secret. And so there will be places in the garden of even greater retreat that Louis and his successors create beyond this formal axis that we've been discussing. And the retreats function really specifically. They are a kind of cult value in absence. I think sometimes absence is noted more than presence. And in such a formal, spectacle-like court, the absence of the king and his favorites would really be noted by everyone else in the court. And so anyone who is invited to one of these retreats would get a kind of important status, like a secret society everyone knows about but can't join. And the retreats constructed by the kings, the successive kings too, to Louis, are their notions of privacy and what they wanted in their private world and the people who come into that private world. And the thing about the private world is it is a place where we can relax a little bit from the formality of the court and the structure that has been imposed by Louis XIV. So instead of dining on a dais with everyone watching your every move, a somewhat more relaxed environment, maybe dining outside over flowers, only being observed by this small, tight-knit group invited by the king, must have seemed somewhat decadent and relaxing. And most of the grand axis, the grand vista of Versailles, is a green landscape, clipped shrubbery. Now, in the places of retreat, flowers begin to reign supreme. Louis acquired a little area off of the grand axis called the Trianon, the little village of the Trianon. And this would be a place of retreat for the kings. Louis specifically felt cultivating flowers was another example of his dominance over nature. Flowers were also seen as the essence of bounty in, in the land. You know, symbol, uh, the king and queen would always use a flower you know, as a symbol. And for the courtiers, they were probably the most exotic things you could, you could acquire, rare tulips, rare things. The flower would become the essence of the retreats. And the retreats really became an inner sanctum for the select few. And appropriately, the first retreat is the Grand Trianon which was designed in 1687 for the king, and he aptly called it his Palace of Flora. That's right. The Palace of Flowers. And the story actually begins with his uncle, Gaston d'Orléans. Now, Gaston was a problem because he was always trying to rebel against Louis' father, Louis XIII. So what did Louis XIII do? He exiled them to the Loire Valley where Gaston stayed out of trouble and he cultivated his garden. But he did something really important. He leaves Louis a collection of these exquisite floral paintings. We see bulbs and plants, 
Crown Imperials, tulips, daffodils. All the bulb flowers that were popular at this time and the Grand Trianon is designed around those gardens, those and, flowers. And it offers a place for Louis to not be a king, right? I mean, the idea of him sitting in a cotton nightgown, informally relaxed, still on a stage, of course, but on a relaxed stage. And the center of the Grand Trianon there is no room. The center of the Palace of Versailles eventually is the Hall of Mirrors. Looking to its garden, the center of the Grand Trianon is an open-air colonnade with rooms at either side. So it's open. Louis would dine plein air, you know, out in the air there. But the idea that when you walk up to the colonnade, you look at, you look at the flower garden. And those flowers could change. The gardeners could come in and change the pots during the course of a day. So the flowers would change continually. So there is a sense of spontaneity and surprise imbued even here in this great royal retreat. Yeah. And the Trianons, as we call them, the Grand Trianon is first, but there would be others in this area. It really is an escape into a gentler world in, in many respects. It is. There's really a new spirit embodied in this world, perhaps recognizes a need for privacy. And we see that need for privacy expand in the reign of the next king. Louis Fourteenth really had to define his rule and his country. You know, he consolidates France, he centralizes power, and he organizes the very strict structures of the court life. Compared with Louis XV, maybe those rules aren't so important to him anymore. He's grown up with them. He's grown up with a fairly stable country to govern. And maybe he, I don't know, thumbs his nose a little bit at a palace frozen in time. And culturally, Louis XV, it's another epoch. You know, Louis XIV is dominating the late 1600s. He dies in 1715. Louis XV is a young boy. He really is coming of age in the 1720s in that period known as this, the Rococo age. Right. I mean, you could say the main palace and gardens are frozen, right? But the gardens and the Trianons are where individuality creativity and the new generations, the spirit of Rococo age. It's the perfect metaphor. Yeah. The, gar- the main palace frozen in time, the Trianons continue to grow. They do. And we see an extension of this private experience of escapism. Louis XV doesn't need this overt power on display anymore. So we start to see different kinds of architecture and garden spaces emerge. A new kind of Trianon is developed. The Grand Trianon is kept, but adjacent to it, Louis XV creates his Petit Trianon, which is an even more privileged place. He really is there to completely escape. He begins one of the finest horticultural gardens in Europe on the grounds of this little Petit Trianon and has a small pavilion designed by Jean-Jacques Gabriel in the middle of this, the uh, 1700s. And it's merely a place for the king to cook. Louis loved to cook and entertain his private friends and to enjoy the bounty of that garden. And we have to remember that this is all happening with the rise of the Enlightenment. There is a general interest in science, a tendency toward inquiry, toward empirical knowledge. Louis's great mistress, Madame de Pompadour, is a famed patron of the arts and letters. And in the, in the Petit Trianon, Louis develops the most organized and scientific ways, his horticultural garden, which is very different from the main gardens of Louis XIV. Here we see raised beds and a clinical scientific specimen-like garden. And, and this is where Louis, 
his incredibly erudite and literate mistress, Madame de Pompadour, and the men and women of arts and letters and inquiry and con- witty conversation could, could get together. And not only was there his one pavilion, he designed a little trellised pavilion called the Cool Pavilion, where they could taste the most delectable fruit from its trees. I mean, in a way, what a notion of the most refined refinement you could get to. I love that it's called the Cool Pavilion. The Cool Pavilion, you know, where they would be served on ice. They love the garden so much that Louis begins to have Gabrielle, the architect, design another little uh, palace, really, called the Petit Trianon uh, for Madame de Pompadour in the new style, the neoclassical. It's a little perfect cube with classical columns, you know, inspired by those of Rome and Greece. It's meant to be a small jewel box in the garden designed for Madame de Pompadour, she never took residence. She dies in 1764 before she's able to take up residence. But this petit trianon would become quite a symbol for the French monarchy. This little jewel meant for escape has quite a rich history to come. The newest player on the horizon is Marie Antoinette. And she is given the petit trianon by her husband, Louis XVI, as a place of escape, which could offer to her maybe a semblance of a private life. We have to remember that Marie Antoinette comes from the court of Austria when she's only 14, and her future husband, Louis, is only 15. He becomes king at 19. Can you imagine? Teenage king and queen. Right. Queen of France at the age of 18. I think coming from the Austrian court to the French court, Marie Antoinette experiences this crushing formality of main court life from dawn till dusk. She is a walking public symbol. And again, for Louis XIV, the rigor and ritual was his armor. But this kind of weighty splendor is at odds, really, with the newest, latest fashions and ideas, which are embodied in the Trianons. And Marie Antoinette will create her own Trianon. For example, she lives at the Petit Trianon, her private realm, her private world. But in addition to that... She is given more farmland, and she creates her own picturesque garden. Meandering streams, there's not a straight line in sight. There's a temple of love with Cupid reigning in it. Really the antithesis of the main gardens at Versailles. Private, with the queen's special group. There she can be natural. She can wear her muslin dresses and straw hats and tend to her roses. That's her private world of the Trianons. She actually does away with Louis XV's horticultural garden and creates this picturesque landscape of curving lines and weeping trees. Probably much more like a relaxed life that she maybe had dreamed of, hoped for. And if we go down this picturesque path, what we see is like a little hamlet, really, where the queen gets to play at being a dairymaid in her rustic And village. she creates that little village. So Louis XIV creates the Grand Trianon. Louis XV creates the Petit Trianon. Marie Antoinette creates what's called Le Petit Amont, the little hamlet. So each monarch is creating their own private world. And I think the dreams of a monarch are kind of interesting. We see them played out in the development of the gardens at Versailles. You're right. And what dreams does Marie Antoinette have? Apparently she wants to be a dairymaid. You know, we see a dairy farm, livestock, like these blue and white rustic flower pots. Of course, with the Queen's monogram, there is definitely a sense of a carefully curated farm life. But 
this is a place I think where she could escape the artifice of the main palace of Versailles and enjoy herself with her ladies. And yet this admiration, she had a romantic view of rural life, is part of a larger movement at the time. There's this begin, there's a spirit of informality in the air and a love of the rustic. And you know, Rousseau at the time is one of the leading, one of the rising stars of the French literary world. And he's writing about the natural man. And why does that matter? People are beginning to reject artifice, everything the original palace was all about. White powdered wigs that would have been worn in the palace, the fripperies of court life are seeming very out of date. Real fashion is playing out in the little peasant village. Now, she was out of touch with the reality of it, but she was in style. This was the style of the moment, the love of this rejection of artifice. But this privacy, this rejection of artifice, the privacy comes at a cost, and it's really used as a weapon against her. And she's seen as aloof and removed from court life and from the beneficence she's meant to show the people. So what we see, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, Louis Louis XIV's Versailles and rules were needed. They consolidated France. They defined France. Stabilized France. Stabilized France. Kept the nobility in check. (laughs) They did, and he needed to do that. They were constantly rebelling against him. But the France that Louis XVI inherits, when he takes the throne, he still is paying obligations to this outmoded past and value system, which no longer serves. So having a foot in one world is tenuous. And the gardens reflect that. You know, when Louis XIV stepped into his garden that he designed, he did it boldly. That garden is his footprint, and all others would walk in his path, in that main public garden with the grand vista. But Louis XVI used the gardens as a screen to hide himself away. And by hiding himself, it diminished his rule. So it's a dream world that is soon to be shattered by the French Revolution. And Marie Antoinette enjoyed her little village only for six years until 1789, when a mob of women arrive at the palace. They seize the royal family and drag them back to Paris. The royal family never saw Versailles again. One can say the sun set on the Sun King's Versailles. However, the sun casts a long beam of light. It does. Uh, The influence of the Sun King and the gardens of Versailles were seen throughout Western Europe and beyond. For example, uh, the gardens at Versailles with their grand radiating avenues, their grand vistas, were models for successive palaces throughout Europe and cities. The whole of St. Petersburg in Russia was based on the Garden of Versailles. Washington, D.C. reflects this approach to French planning and its grand radiating avenues throughout. So although the majesty and the splendor of the French court disappeared, six million members of the public visited every year, it's open, it became a museum after the French Revolution, the gardens were accessible, so we can still say, you know, the Sun King still reigns supreme in that garden, and Apollo is still at the very center of that, casting his light upon the whole setting. And the whole world. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to our podcast, where we will continue to connect the big ideas and small details that shape world culture. The music in this podcast is an excerpt from Le Toile Danse and is provided courtesy of Maidan.